Chapter 5 of The Orphan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Orphan by Clarence E. Mulford. Chapter 5 Bill Justifies His Creation. Bill Howland careened along the stage route, rapidly leaving Ford Station in his rear. He rolled through the arroyo on alternate pairs of wheels, splashed through the limping water, leaving it roiled and muddy, and shot up the opposite bank with a rush. Before him was a stretch of a dozen miles, level as a billiard-table, and then the route traversed a country rocky and uneven, and wound through cuts and defiles and around rocky buttes of strange formation. This continued for ten miles, and the last defile cut through a ridge of rock, called the backbone, which ranged in height from twenty to forty feet, smooth, unbroken, and perpendicular on its eastern face. This ridge wound and twisted from the big chaparral twenty miles below the defile to a branch of the limping water, fifteen miles above. And in all the thirty-five miles there was but a single opening, that one used by Bill and the stage. In crossing the level plain, Bill could see for miles to either side of him, but when once in the rough country his view was restricted to yards, and more often to feet. It was here that he expected trouble, if at all and he usually went through it with a speed which was reckless, to say the least. He had just dismissed the possibility of meeting with Apaches, as he turned into the last long defile, which he was pleased to call a canyon. As he made the first turn, he nearly fell from his seat in astonishment at what he saw. Squarely in the center of the trail ahead of him was a horseman, who rode the horse which had formerly belonged to Jimmy of the Crossbar Eight. And across the cut, lay a heavy piece of timber, one of the dead trees which were found occasionally at that altitude, and it effectively barred the passing of the stage. The horseman wore his sombrero far back on his head, and a rifle lay across his saddle, while two repeating Winchesters were slung on either side of his horse. One startled look revealed the worst to the driver. The orphan, the terrible orphan, faced him. "'Don't choke. I'm not going to eat you.' assured the horseman with a smile. "'But I'm going to smoke half of your tobacco, and you can bring me a half a pound when you come back from Sagetown. Just throw it up yonder,' pointing to a rocky ledge, "'and keep going right ahead.' Bill looked very much relieved, and hastily fumbled in his hip pocket, which was a most suicidal thing to do in a hurry. But the orphan didn't even move at the play, having judged the man before him and having faith in his judgment. The hand came out again with a pouch of tobacco, which its owner flung to the outlaw. After putting half of it in his own pouch and enclosing a coin to pay for his half-pound, the orphan tossed it back again, and then moved the tree-trunk until it fell to the road, when he dismounted and rolled it aside. "'You forget right now that you have seen me, or you'll have heart disease some day in this place,' warned the horseman, moving aside. Bill swore earnestly that at times his memory was too short to even remember his own name, and he enthusiastically lashed his Cayuse sextet. As he swung out on the plain again, he glanced furtively over his shoulder, and breathed a deep breath of relief when he found that the outlaw was not in sight. He then tied a knot in his handkerchief so as to be sure to remember to get a half-pound package of tobacco. A new responsibility, and one which he had never borne before, weighed upon him. He must keep silent, and what a rich subject for endless conversations! 
talking material which would last him for years must be sealed tightly within his memory, on penalty of death if he failed to keep it a secret. After an uneventful trip across the open plain, which passed so rapidly because of his intent thoughts that he hardly realized it, he ripped into Sagetown with a burst of speed and flung the mailbag at the station agent, after which he hastened to float the dust down his throat. When he met his Sagetown friends, he had fairly to choke down his secret, and his aching desire to create a sensation pained and worried him. "'You made her faster than usual, Bill,' remarked the bartender casually. "'You're half an hour ahead of time,' he added in a congratulatory tone as he placed a bottle and glass before the new arrival. "'Yes, and I had to stop, too,' Bill replied, and then hastily gulped down his liquor to save himself. That so? asked old Pop Wesley, an habitué of the saloon. Pop Wesley had fought through the Civil War and never forgot to tell of his experiences, which must have been unusually numerous, even for four years of hard campaigning, if one may judge from the fact that he never had to repeat, and yet used them as his coup d'etat in many conversational bouts. What was it, Injuns? he asked, winking at the bartender, as if in prophecy as to what the driver would choose for his next lie. "'Oh, no,' replied Bill, groping for an idea to get him out of trouble. "'Nope. Just had to lose twenty minutes rolling rocks out of the canyon. They must have been a little landslide since I went through her the last time. Some of them was pretty big, too.' "'I thought you might have had to kill some engines, like you did when they broke out four years ago.' responded the bartender gravely. "'Tell us about that time you licked them dozen mad Apache warriors, Bill,' he requested. "'That was a blamed good scrap from what I can remember.' "'Oh, I've told you about that scrap so much, I'm ashamed to tell it again,' replied the driver, wishing that he could remember just what he had said about it, and sorry that his memory was so inferior to his imagination. "'Let you get scalped going back,' pleasantly remarked Johnny Sands who had not fought in the Civil War, but who often ferociously wished he had when old Pop Wesley was telling of how Mee took Vicksburg, or some other such bit of history. Pop must have been connected to a flying regiment, for he had fought under every general on the Union side. "'You're on for the drinks, Johnny,' answered Bill promptly, feeling that it would be a double joy to win. "'The war-whoops never lived who could scalp Bill Howland, and don't forget it neither.' he boastfully averred as he made for the door, very anxious to get away from that awful gnawing temptation to open their eyes wide about his recent experience. "'Then the orphan will get you sure,' came from Pop Wesley. Bill jumped and slammed the door so hard that it shook the building. He saw that his sextet was being properly fed and watered for the return trip, which would not take place until the next day but a trifle like twenty-four hours had no effect on Bill under his present stress of excitement, and he fooled about the coach as if it was his dearest possession, inspecting the king-bolt, running-gear, and whiffle-trees with anxious eyes. He wanted no breakdown, because the Apaches might be farther north than was their custom. That done, he took his rifle apart and thoroughly cleaned and oiled it, seeing that the magazine was full to the end. Then he had his supper and went straight therefrom to bed, not daring to again meet his friends for fear of breaking his promise to the orphan. At dawn he drew up beside the small station and waited for the arrival of the train, 
which even then was a speck at the meeting-place of the rails on the horizon. The station agent sauntered over to him and grinned. "'I guess I will get that telegraph line after all, Bill,' he remarked happily. "'I heard that the division superintendent wanted to get word to me in a hurry the other day, and raise the devil when he couldn't. I've been fighting for a wire to civilization for three years, and now I reckon she'll come.' "'I always said you ought to have a telegraph line out here,' Bill replied. "'Suppose that train should run off the track some day. What would they do, hey?' "'Huh! That train never goes fast enough to run off of anything,' retorted the station agent. "'She'd stop dead if she hit a coyote, by gosh. Here she comes now. What do you think of that, eh? Half an hour ahead of time, too. Must be trying to hit up a better average than she's had for the last year.' She's usually due three hours late," he added in bewilderment. She owes the world about a month. Must have left the day before by mistake. Johnny Sand says he raced her once for ten miles and beat it a mile," replied Bill, crossing his legs and yawning. Then he began one of his endless talks, and the agent hastily departed and left him to himself. When the train finally stopped at its destination, after running past the station and having to back to the platform, three women alighted and looked around. Seeing the stage, they ordered their baggage transferred to it and gave Bill a shock by their appearance. "'Is this a stage which runs to Ford Station?' the eldest asked of Bill. Bill fumbled at his sombrero and tore it from his head as he replied. "'Yes, sir, er, ma'am,' he said confusedly. Are you Sheriff's sister, ma'am?" Yes, she answered. Why do you ask? Has anything happened to him in this awful country? she asked in alarm. No, ma'am, not yet, responded Bill in confusion. He just didn't expect you till the next train, ma'am, that's all. He was going to meet you then. Now isn't that just like a man? she asked her companions. I distinctly remember that I wrote him I would come on the twenty-fourth. How stupid of him! "'Yes, ma'am, you did,' interposed Bill eagerly. "'But this is only the twenty-first, ma'am.' She refused to notice the correction and waved her hand toward the coach. "'Get in, dears,' she said. "'I do so hope it isn't dirty and uncomfortable, and we have so far to go in it, too. Thirty miles, think of it.' Bill thought of it, but refrained from offering correction. If Shields had said it was thirty miles when he knew it was eighty, that was Shields' affair and he didn't care to have any unpleasantness. He had offered correction about the date, and that was enough for him. Clambering down heavily, he opened the side door of the vehicle, and then helped the station agent put the trunks and valises and hat-boxes on the hanging shelf behind the coach, and saw that they were lashed securely into place. Then he threw the mail-bag upon his seat, climbed after it, and started on his journey with a whoop and rush, for this trip was to be a record-breaker. Shields had said it was thirty miles, and it behoved the driver to make it seem as short as possible. The unexpected arrival of the women had driven everything else from his mind, even the orphan, and after he had covered a mile he had a strong desire to smoke. Giving his whip a jerk, he threw it along the top of the coach and slipped the handle under his arm. Then he felt for his pouch, and as his fingers closed upon it, he suddenly stiffened and gasped. He had forgotten the orphan's half-pound. Swearing earnestly, and badly frightened at the close call he had from incurring the anger of a man like the outlaw, 
he pulled on the reins with a suddenness which caused the sextet to lay back their ears and indulge in a few heartfelt kicks. But the darting whip kept peace and he swung around and returned to town. As he drove past the station, Mary Shields, the sheriff's elder sister, poked her head out of the door and called to him. "'Driver!' she exclaimed. "'Driver!' Bill craned his neck and looked down. "'Yes, ma'am,' he replied anxiously. "'Are we there already?' she asked. "'Why, no, ma'am. It's a—' thirty miles yet,' he responded as he sprang to the ground. "'Then where are we, for goodness' sake?' "'Back in Sagetown, ma'am,' he hurriedly replied. "'I sure forgot something,' he added in explanation of the return as he ran toward the saloon. She turned to her companions with a gesture of despair. "'Isn't it awful?' she asked. "'What a terrible thing drinking is! A most detestable habit! Here we are, back to where we started from, and just because our driver must have a drink of nasty liquor. Why, we would have been there by this time. I will most assuredly speak to James about this.' "'Well, I suppose we may go on now.' she exclaimed as Bill bolted into sight again, holding a package firmly in his two hands. "'I suppose he feels quite capable of driving now.' Bill, blissfully ignorant of the remarks he had called forth, tossed the tobacco upon the mailbag and climbed into his seat again. The long whip hissed and cracked as he bellowed to the team, and once more they started for Ford Station. The passengers had all they could do to keep their seats because of the gymnastics of the erratic stage. Bill, who had always found delight in seeing how near he could come to missing things, and who was elated at the joy of getting over the worst parts of the trail with speed, decided that this was a rare and most auspicious occasion to show just what he could do in the way of fancy driving. The return to town had spoiled his chances for a record, but he still could do some high-class work with the reins. The weight of the baggage on the tailboard bothered him until he discovered that it acted as a tail to his Concord kite, and when he learned that, he joyously essayed feats which he had long dreamed of doing. The result was fully appreciated by the terrified passengers, who, choking with the dust which forced its way into them, could only hold fast to whatever came to their grasp and pray that they would survive. As he passed a peculiarly formed clump of organ cacti, which he regarded as being his halfway mark, he happened to glance behind, and his face blanched in a sudden fear which gripped his heart in an icy grasp. He leaped to his feet, wrapping the reins about his wrists, and the black snake coiled and writhed and hissed. Its reports sounded like those of a gun, and every time it straightened out a horse lost a bit of hair and skin. Both of the leaders had limp and torn ears, and a sudden terror surged through the team, causing their eyes to dilate and grow red. The driver's voice, strong and full, rang out in blood-curdling whoops, which ended in the wailing howl of a coyote, wonderfully well imitated. The combination of voice and whip was too much, and the six horses, maddened by the terrible sting of the lash and the frightful, haunting howl, became frenzied and bolted. Braced firmly on the footboard, poised carefully and with just the right tension on the reins, the driver scanned the trail before him, avoiding as best he could the rocks and deep ruts, and watching alertly for a stumble. His sombrero had deserted him, and his long brown hair snapped behind him in the wind. Bill was frightened, 
but not for himself alone. With all his bravado, he was built of good timber, and his one thought was for the women under his care. He unconsciously prayed that they might not be brought face to face with the realization of what menaced them, that they would not learn why the coach lurched so terribly, that the trunk which obstructed the back window of the coach would not shift and give them a sight of the danger. Oh, that the running gear held! That the king-bolt, knew, thank God, proved the words of the boasting blacksmith to be true! He soon came to the beginning of a three-hundred-yard stretch of perfect road, and he hazarded a quick backward glance. Instantly his eyes were to the front again, but his brain retained the picture he had seen, retained it perfectly and in wonderful clearness. He saw that the Apaches were no longer a mile away, but that they had gained upon him very little, so very little that only an eye accustomed to gauging changing distances could have noticed the difference. And he also saw that the group was no longer compact but that it was already spreading out into the dreaded, deadly crescent, a crescent with the best horses at the horns, which would endeavor to sweep forward and pass the coach, drawing closer together until the circle was complete with the stage as the center. Another yell burst from him, and again and again the whip writhed and hissed and cracked, and a new burst of speed was the reward. Well it was that the horses were the best and most enduring to be found on the range. He was dependent on his team, he and his passengers. He could not hope to take up his rifle until the last desperate stand. Oh, if he only had the sheriff, the cool, laughing, accurate sheriff with him to lie against the seat and shoot for his sisters! Already the bullets were dropping behind him, but he did not know of it. They dropped, as yet, many yards too short, and he could not hear the flat reports. The wind which roared and whistled past his ears spared him that. A stumble! But up again, and without injury, for a master hand held the reins, a hand as cunning as the eyes were calculating. Could Bill's scoffing friends see him now, their scoffing would freeze on lips open in admiring astonishment. If he attained nothing more in his life, he was justifying his creation. He was doing his best, and doing it wonderfully well. Long since had fear left him. He was now only a superb driver, an alert, quick-thinking master of his chosen trade. He thrilled with a peculiar elation, for was he not playing his hand against death? A lone hand, and with no hope of a lucky draw. All he could hope for was that he be not unlucky and lose the game because of the weakness of a wheel, or the traces, or that new king-bolt, that the splendid, ugly, terrorized units of his sextet would last until he had gained the canyon, where the stage would nearly block the narrow opening, and where he could exchange reins for rifle. Within the coach three women were miserably huddled in a mass on the floor. Two would be more proper because the third, a slim girl of nineteen, was temporarily out of her misery, having fainted, which was a boon denied to her companions. Thrown from side to side, as if they were straws in weight, they first crashed into one wall and then into the other, buffeting from the edge of the front seat to that of the rear one. Bruised and bleeding and terrified, they dumbly prayed for deliverance from the madman up above them. The driver's eye caught sight of the turn, which lay ten miles northeast of the canyon. Then he had passed it. 
Only ten miles more, Bronx! he shouted, imploringly, beseechingly. Hold it, boys! Hold it, pets! Only ten miles more! he repeated until the left hand leader lurched forward and lost its footing. Another bit of masterly manipulation of the reins saved it from going down, and again the coyote yell rang out in all of its acute, quavering, hair-raising mournfulness. The black snake again and again mercilessly leaped and struck, and another wonderful burst of speed rewarded him. His heart suddenly went out to his horses, as he realized what speed they were making and had been holding for so long a time, and he swore to treat them better than they had ever known if they pulled him safely to the mouth of the canyon. A second backward glance, forced from him because of the awful uncertainty at his back, because if it was the last thing he ever did, he must look behind him as a child looks back into the awful darkness of the room, caused his face to be convulsed with smiles, sudden and sincere. He shouted madly in his joy at what he saw, dancing up and down regardless of his perilous footing, bending his knees with a recklessness almost criminal, as he uncoiled the hissing black snake high up in the air. Again and again the whistling, hissing length of braided rawhide curled and straightened and cracked, faster and faster, until the reports almost merged. He tossed his head and laughed wildly, hysterically, and danced as only a man can dance when eased of a terrible nervous tension. The rasping of the icy, grasping fingers of death along his back suddenly ceased, and there came to him assurance of life and vengeance. Turning again, he hurled the writhing length of his whip at the yelling Apaches, snapping the rifle-like reports at their faces, cursing them in shouted words hot, joyous, cynical, taunting words fresh from the soul of him, throbbing with his hatred, venomous, contemptuous, scathing, too heartfelt to be over-profane. "'Come on, de blank you! Your slide to H. Blank L is grease now! Come on, you wolves! You cheap, blind vultures! Come on! Come on!' he yelled, well nigh of his senses from the reaction. "'Yes, yell! Yell de blank you!" he shouted as they replied to his taunts. Yell! Shoot your tin guns while you can, for you'll soon be so full of lead you'll stop forever. Come on! Come on! They came. All their energies were bent toward the grotesque figure that reviled them. They could not catch his words, but their eyes flashed at what they could see. Dust arose in huge, low clouds behind them and they gained rapidly for a time, but only for a time, for their mounts had covered many miles in the last few days, and were jaded and without their usual strength because of insufficient food. But they gained enough to drop their shots on the coach, although accurate shooting at the pace they were keeping was beyond their skill. Puffs of dust spurted from the plain in front of the team and arose beside it, and a jagged splinter of seasoned ash whizzed past the driver's ear. A long gray furrow suddenly appeared in the end of the seat, and holes began to show in the woodwork of the stage. One bullet, closer than the others, almost tore the reins from the driver's hands as it hit the loose end of leather which flapped in the air. Its jerk caused him to turn again and renew his verbal cautterie, tears in his eyes from the fervor of his madness. Hi-yi! Whoopee! he shouted at his straining, steaming sextet. Keep it up, Bronx! 
Hold her for ten minutes more, boys. We'll win. We'll win. We'll laugh them into H-blank L yet. We'll dance on their painted faces. Keep her steady. You're all right, every de-blanked one of you. Hold her steady. Whoopee! A new factor had drawn cards, and the new factor could play his cards better than any two men under that washed-out, faded blue sky. End of chapter 5